a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. We've got a wonderful show for you. But before we get to that, this is where we kind of check in with each other and see how your week's going. Any new news? You usually bring some stats, some statistics, or any of that good stuff. Right. Today, I'm just wearing a blouse. I don't think it's a blouse. You walked in saying this is not a blouse, which makes me think that somebody said, hey, Dr. Matt. No, it's just me. Nice blouse. I bought it, and then I've worn it, and I'm like, it's such a comfortable shirt, but it kind of looks like a blouse. But see, I look at a shirt like that, and I go, that shirt's going to look good on me one time, because that's a shirt you have to iron or dry clean, neither of which I do. Yeah, I don't either. I send my shirts out, to be honest with you. That's well, you're a doctor. Of well, course you do. I don't I mean, have- That's a doctor I, no, move. No, hold on. Yeah, I get I it. Don't, I don't do too many, like- um, like self-indulgent things. I actually am very hesitant to do that. Mm-hmm. But one time for my birthday, someone bought me like a dry cleaning like month and I could t- send my shirts out. Uh-huh. I'm like, I'll never. Game I'll never. changer? Yeah. That's, that's worth it. I'll eat less during the month if I need to in order to send my shirts out. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I used to do that with cigarettes in, in uh, college. <laughs> but see, I don't smoke. You know what I mean? So, I, mean like, you know, I could eat today or I could buy a pack of smokes and I always bought the pack, pack of, smokes. of smokes. Yeah, yeah. So this is my pack of smokes, getting my shirts sent out. You know, I yeah. worked at a dry cleaner in high school. Really? Up in Ogden, yep. Yeah, it's a scam, right? They don't really do anything. No, back they there. do do it. Oh, do they? But we didn't do it on the site where you drop the clothes. So you'd bring the clothes, then yeah. we would send them to the dry cleaner, and then they'd bring them back and then put them on that. Uh, that the so you didn't thing. really see what the dry cleaners do. No, but I think they really, I mean, you could feel it right I now. I think they um, just kind of rub it with their nail and get you know, smooth it off. And then, and then throw done. a little starch on it? Yeah, because that's dry. You can't use liquids. Hey, speaking of high school, guess what I just did last weekend? What'd you do? My 30 year high school reunion. Union. Nice. You're getting old, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> but it was cool. And uh, we didn't talk much about Did it. Did you have a good turnout? Because I've been talking to people lately where the turnouts for these high school reunions aren't what they used to be. Did you have a lot of people go? No. Yeah. See? No, we didn't. Uh, Isn't that weird? Because I was so excited to go see all my And I thought there'd friends. be a lot more people. I think probably in my graduating class, there was around 330 people. Okay. Uh, and I think total was- in Tigers, right? Yep. Class yep. of 92. There you go. Um, and I thought, I think with guys I went to school with and girls and their spouses, there maybe was 100 people. With spouses? There with were, spouses. So maybe you had 50 people or maybe something Maybe 50 like that. people. And I was okay. fortunate enough that it was a lot of the people that I hung out with in high school and I knew. Uh, I ran into some people that uh, I hadn't seen for 30 years. And it was really cool. I didn't talk much about it before because, to be honest with you, I was a little nervous a little hesitant about even going. I can't even imagine you being hesitant or nervous to go see a group of people. Okay, go ahead. Ask me what I remember of my 20 year. What do you remember of your 20 year? Not a thing. <laughs> because I was hammered. Why was that? I was hammered. Yeah. I was, you know, it was it was crazy. And my ego was such that I was, I was it was in the prime of TV and everything was going good for me. Yeah, And all was, that huh? stuff. Yeah, and and I just ago. showed up and 
I thought I was hot, and I thought it was everything. So you pre-gamed. You got, you got plowed before, or did they have alcohol at the event? All of the above. Okay. And, you, you know, and, yeah. and I, so here's what's crazy, that I was at this reunion, and I can tell you exactly everything that happened Friday and Saturday night. And Friday, Friday night, we were at a bar. And I walked in there, and guess who I saw right when I walked in there? Who? My old principal, Santiago Sandoval. Wow, that is a great name. Oh, he was a great guy. Yeah. Because I, I graduated with his daughter, Maria, but I walk in there and I go, Santiago! And he goes, Mr. Scott? Still calls me Mr. Scott. And I'm like, hey, how are you? With a little suspicion in his voice because he wonders what you're up to? But here's the thing. He yeah. doesn't drink anymore. Oh, he really? quit drinking. Okay. And so we had a good conversation about recovery, but we were at the bar and uh, people were having a good time. And, and I understand some people wanting to drink, uh, to take the edge off and stuff like that. Like, I don't begrudge people that. You know what I mean? I understand that part of it. For me, it doesn't work because I didn't have an off button. Right. Well, I was, I, I was going to say, some people can yeah. just have a drink, right? But I really wanted to go to that Friday night because I figured that that's where the classmates would let loose a little bit. And you know what I mean? And Less formal. It's out at the bar. Yeah. Did very many people show to that? And maybe 40 people to that. Okay. But it was great. I mean, we had music going. We had name tags. We had old pictures. And it was just, it was a cool walk down memory lane. That is fun. And, yeah. and I'm glad I went. And uh, it was it was really cool. But the thing is, is that I was talking to people. And some of the people I talked to said, hey, it's good to see you. It's, it's wonderful that you got your life back on. You were always a nice guy. And I'm, I'm glad you figured your life out. But there were some people that I had hard conversations with who were like, you know what? You weren't a nice person. Really? You were, you, they, they called you out on it? Not in high school, but like at the 20 and after graduation. But I mean, at this last event, yeah. pe- people were like. They're, they're not like, like, hey, blatantly out, but you know, we were talking. They were like, hey. You they're know, just last, being honest. Yeah. Last time I saw you, you were not a fun person and you were a hot mess. And, oh, um, okay. Yeah. It, this, this is, it wasn't pleasure. It wasn't nice. Yeah. You know, and so it was interesting to hear both sides of the story, you know, and, and, and I'm not to, to boast my own self up uh for the most part people said hey you were a good kid and and we really enjoyed you in high school i i mean i can see that i mean i think that that's your personality has been pretty consistent over time but uh why do you think that changed like at the 20th for example when you're pretty lit like why why would they I like think- what, what's different about you back in those days I think I was conceited. I think I was a little full of myself, and I think yeah. I was a little egotistical. But to be honest with you, I mean, yeah. So the humor that you normally have becomes has an edge to it. Yeah, right. You yeah. know, and when I was drinking, I I would like I've got a fairly quick sense of humor, and if we're going back and forth, you're fast. Yeah. If yeah. somebody says something and I don't like it, the easiest way to get that stop is to cut you off at your feet. Yeah. And sometimes that's saying mean things. Zingers. And for everybody in the party, that's fun because it was quick and witty. But if you're the person on the receiving end of that, yeah, that's not cool. That's not fun. Yeah. And you know, sometimes I I, I would have a. I don't know, sometimes I I had a. So how does it make you feel? Like uh, there you are, you're you're kind of trying to reconnect with people, and somebody's that honest with you. How did it make you feel? It made me well. It made me feel good that they, they believed in me, and then they were happy I got my life back. No, no, no. The criticism, of course. The other one made you feel good. <laughs> it hurt me. Yeah, because I don't want to be that guy, and I know that I'm not that guy. But that's the guy they got. Well, you have you're also kind of a pleaser. I know you can have an edge to you when you're drinking and stuff, but yeah. if you're a pleaser, you want people to like you. So it's kind of hard to hear the reality of how you or anybody affected other people when they were in their cups. 
You know, but what I've learned in my recovery is that my humor was a self-defense mechanism. Okay, tell and me more about that. So if I was in a situation and things weren't going my way or people were coming at me and wanted to have a genuine, honest conversation that I wasn't ready to give the answers, I could distract them with humor. Mm. I, y- y- yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I could change the, the direction. Control of, the conversation. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so sometimes that meant saying something to somebody that – would get the detention off of me and onto them. And then but I But not in a good way. Not in a them. good way. <laughs> yeah. No. And and and, right. and that's what hurt me because like I said, I I didn't want to be that person. I'm not that person. But at that time for those people, I was that person. Yeah. And that sucks. Well what can you do about that now? Um have authentic, genuine conversations now. Yeah. Apologize and let people know that I've changed and that I'm still working on things and I don't have it all figured out. But I, I'm was anybody not receptive to that? No, no, everybody was receptive. Cool. But I know, I mean, I, I can read a room. I knew there were some people in there that stayed away from me. Yeah. You know, we were sitting, we had a casino night. I was sitting around uh, the casino, we were playing cards and stuff like that. And I mean, there was a group of a hundred of us in there and there was people in there that I didn't get a chance to talk to. Yeah. And that kind of hurt me, you know, until the next morning I woke up and I got this text. Okay. Casey, and I'm not going to say his name, but he goes, my biggest regret of the evening was that I didn't get to tell you personally. Thank you for not drinking. I've been in a lot of Middle East combat since I last saw you 30 years ago. Coming home to a regular life has been darn hard. He said, damn, though, and has taken me years to be able to sleep a little at night and not be ready to fight all the time every time I hear a noise. It's too easy just to want to go numb. It seems like a good idea at the time, but all drinking has ever done for me has made my problems bigger and made me a little happy. And the next thing I know, I have a hair trigger and I end up yelling at people that I love. I didn't drink it at all Saturday evening, though, even though it seemed like a good idea. I appreciate that you didn't either, more than you'll ever know. Great seeing you. Oh, man. What a great – two great things about that, the content and the fact that he'd take the time to send it. I woke up the next morning and, you know, had the, the being on your phone goes off and I look at it and I just stared at it. And I was like – I mean – You I, saw the name? You yeah, knew who yep, it was? Yep. I knew exactly who it was. Uh-huh. And – and he was a good friend of mine uh, all through high school. And, and and we did walk past each other in the buffet line. And I was like, I want to make sure I find some time to talk to that guy. And then the night got away from itself. Yeah. And I wasn't able to do that. And so much in the fact that I'm driving home from the reunion with my girlfriend. I was like, you know what? I wish I would have. I wish I would have had a chance. Mm. Because the guy always made me laugh. And I really enjoyed his sense of humor. And I enjoyed the person he was. And so to get that message from him, and I had no idea about his past. Now yeah. I think he knew about my past because it's all over social it's media public, yeah. and the podcast and such like that. But it just meant the world to me. Oh, that's a uh, – yeah. I mean, I think what a genuine, authentic thing for him to say. And the fact that he opened up. I mean, here we have a veteran uh, who has PTSD, obviously. Mm-hmm. And like so many people with PTSD, especially combat vets, uh, he used the word numb out. And that's such – uh, an understandable and normal uh, thing to want to do. But as he eloquently put it, it hasn't ever helped. It's only hurt. And so a lot of our vets are stuck in sort of this in-between no man's land where they don't have uh, or they don't know how to get the right proper treatment for their PTSD. There might even be some social stigma in their community about getting it. And so they often resort to things like, like uh, like alcohol or drugs, and I'm I'm glad that he 
took the night off on Saturday and didn't drink and was able to see the benefit from that. And obviously what's really cool is he watched you Mm -hmm. and you set an example or gave him sort of a a type of emotional support you probably didn't even know you were giving because he saw you weren't drinking and he knew your public story and he probably thought, well, if Casey can do it, I can do it. And that's how we all support each other in a community, even when we don't talk to each other. Two things uh, that I learned over this weekend in the class reunion is that I can have just as much fun without alcohol. I was the same guy I was in high school. I was having fun at the tables. I was being loud. We were, we were, we were, it, was, it was just as much fun as I had hoped it would have been. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was an absolute blast. And I, it really, really was an awesome thing for me to be able to attend. I would say you're a better person. I, I, you know, I mean, it's like yeah. the best version of you. And, and yeah. I'm still striving to be a better person. But I think his definition of drinking is the best definition I've ever heard. But all drinking has ever done for me is made my problems bigger and made me a little happy. And the next thing I know, I have a hair trigger and I end up yelling at people that I love. Yeah. That's so typical, right? I mean, so many people can relate to exactly what he's going through. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to inform you a little bit about my 30-year class reunion, Ogden High School Football Rules. Do they? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) I don't really think so. The difference between Morgan and Ogden uh, reunions, you guys were gambling. (laughs) Yeah. I think think the craziest we got was, I think we had Chinese food. They had craps. They had roulette. They had blackjack. Yeah. Uh, It was all fake money. Yeah. But it was a blast. That sounds like an Ogden High good time to me. It was an Ogden High good time. Yeah, it's fun. We're getting old, but I mean, it's kind of fun. I had our reunion recently. I mean, ours was delayed a year. I'm a 90, you're a 92. It's fun to see everybody, isn't it? The fun thing is you're standing around and people are like, well, I got a hip replacement. Well, I got a bad back. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like we're playing Starting uh, to hear the body part bingo. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, well, I broke my ankle three times. And, but it was cool. cool. Hey, uh, well, we've, no, oh, hold on. Oh, before, oh, we, oh, before we move, oh, you got I was to gonna read. Get, I was going to get to Savannah, I, but I, I okay, okay. She's the star of the show, I, I know, know. But she can wait just a second oh, longer. Savannah, wait just a sec. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, that's a teaser in the yeah, business. We I, call that a teaser. We get it. Um, <laughs> I want to read. A, I want to read a message that we got. Okay. Okay. This is from somebody that I know, and they they. I haven't talked to this person in a really long time. I wasn't aware that they were uh, listening to the show. I did know they were in recovery, but listen to this. This is what they said. Okay. They said. They said, "Hi, Matt. I have been a devoted listener to Project Recovery. You and Casey are a dynamite team." I've recommended the podcast to all my sponsees and many friends. We talk about each installment. You guys are doing a great life-changing work. Please tell Casey. Keep the momentum, guys. You've made a very positive addition to my recovery. Best wishes. And so the reason I bring that up is not to brag about our show. No. It's maybe to highlight the fact that what we're doing is we're bringing people like Savannah onto our show to tell their story and tell about what they do to give back and help in our communities. And just like your friend took some strength from you without even talking to you uh, Saturday night at the reunion, we can all take strength from each other by without ever even actually meeting each other. Like these, these folks that are listening to our show, that are listening to Savannah and so many other people's stories who are finding uh, resources because of listening to what the people bring on to our show. Uh, everybody is connecting and helping each other. And I'm just pleased, so pleased to know that it makes a difference for people uh, in their lives. And so um, now this is called a segue. So I'm grateful that Savannah would come on the show and further that. So Savannah won't meet that person in probably in person, 
but her story is going to touch him and so many other people's lives. I love it. And that's what we wanted to do with this podcast was open up a conversation. So Savannah's got over five years of recovery under your belt. Yes, five years. And we're going to find out more about your story in just a second. You're listening to Project Recovery. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our guest today is Savannah Ely. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys? All right. Now, before we get into your story, the reason we, well, one of the reasons you came to the podcast today was to talk about addiction and recovery in rural Utah. Yes. Uh, You are from where? I am from Emory County, but I work in Carbon. So Carbon Emory, anybody that knows Carbon Emory knows that for the longest time we was the first in the state for opioid overdose deaths. Now, for those who don't know, uh, how big of community is it? I think between Carbon and Emory County, maybe 32,000 people combined in both counties. But 32,000 people and number one in opioid Mm -hmm. abuse. Yeah, opioid abuse and overdose deaths. Wow. Yeah. And you wanted to come on here and highlight some of the wonderful things you're doing up there. And, of course, we're going to give you all the time you want at the end of the podcast. Yes. But where does the story of Savannah Ely begin? So I think for me, um, I had a great childhood. I mean, amazing. I had my parents weren't divorced. Um, My grandpa was the um, sheriff of Summit County for years. We lived in Park City with him. And um, then we moved to Emory County. And, you know, I think moving down there was a very big shock. Even though I was I was young, it was still completely different from what we was used to. So for those who don't know, so it's basically you, you moved from Park City, mm-hmm. which is pretty rural back then. Yeah, back then it was it was not big like it is now. And uh, then you moved to even smaller town. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you said it was a little bit of a culture shock, a little bit of a, a, a shock all around. Why was that? So for me, I think, um, you know, um, a lot of it has to do with stigma, right? We were LDS. Um, once we were um, seen that we weren't LDS, kids couldn't play with us. Um, we didn't make basketball teams, baseball teams, football teams, you know, whatever. I watched my brother go through that. So um, that was that was hard. So already from the get-go, you're kind of feeling like an outsider in your mm-hmm. own community. Yeah. Yep. So I think, you know, fast forward 10 or well, a lot longer than 10 years, fast forward and I'm in recovery and people are like, oh, the stigma of substance use. I'm like, oh gosh, you know, it doesn't really affect me because I've dealt with it my whole life, some form of stigma my whole life. So that stigma of substance use didn't really define me. Like I never let it define me. Um, You know, when I was little, did it define me? Absolutely. It probably helped me, um, helped me become a substance user in a weird way, I want to say, because I always was thinking, what's wrong with me? 
you know, I know I'm a good kid. I'm, I'm up, you know, my friend's dad passes away. I'm up mowing their lawn and taking care of their house for them, you know. Um, so in a weird way, I think that stigma of not being LDS in an LDS community really affected me at a young age, too. What, what was that like? Because, um, you know, thinking back to childhood and early adolescence, you know, having friends, feeling accepted, being part of the group, you know, I'll, <clears throat> where I live, you'll see like after school, it's going to start here pretty soon. The gaggle of preteens walking around <laughs> together, you know, oh, yeah. like that's all very, very important to our personal development. And if you were in a in a larger community, you might find your like subgroup of people in a small community. It's a lot harder because there are just fewer options. Social yeah. life. How did that affect your social life? And s- subsequently, how did it affect how you felt about yourself being kind of excluded? Um, I think socially it was it was hard because it was, you know, um, just even watching my brother who was a lot older than me. I mean, he he was amazing at baseball, you know, and watching him like sit out and not being able to play or, you know, everybody always saying other parents, you would hear other parents that, you know, became friends with my mom and dad. Well, it's where you sit. It was where, you know, where you sit on Sundays, where your kids are going to be. And so, you know, at a young age, like that was hard, right? Because it was like, why even try then if if that's what it's going to be like, why if it's already predetermined. Yeah. If it's already predetermined, yeah. why would I try out for basketball? Why would I, why would I do volleyball or any of these things, you know, but, um, still I tried and I, and I was good. I, I feel like a basketball player. I was good. Um, but, uh, but you would see the favorites in the, yeah. in the coaches, you know, so that, that was hard. Like it would just, I guess in a weird way, it was just like, what's the point? You know, at a so young age, you got sort of to create that. some resentment mm-hmm. yes. and uh, kind of an us against them. And yeah. and we start to define ourselves, develop our identity at those ages. And that's sort of a negative yeah. way of identifying as a as a young person. Yeah. That I'm different. I'm excluded mm-hmm. just because I'm who I am. Yeah. And one thing that we've learned on this podcast, and I know from my own experience growing up, uh, usually the kids that are smoking, drinking, doing drugs – are the most welcoming kids out there. And your yeah. only payment is willing to do those things. Yeah. And all you have to do is be like, sure. And then you're automatically in. And yeah. the, like I, when I used to smoke cigarettes, I would tell people the most friendly people are cigarette smokers outside a building. They'll talk to anybody. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter who it is because they, you, you've got right. something in common. We both are addicted to cigarettes. We're both standing outside and it's snowing. And so <laughs> let's just talk. The yeah. parking lot crew. Or, the parking yeah, lot crew. Yeah. And, and really that is the only admission is your willingness to do these things. Right. That, they're usually very accepting. Was that yeah. your experience, Savannah? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, those were all the kids that were being judged. Those mm-hmm. were all the same kids that were being judged, right? The ones that are now, you know, we're in high school and now we are smoking and we are drinking and, you know, going out and partying. And it's, you know, I look back on that and I think, gosh, those are all the same kids that were being judged. I mean, I'll, I can say that there was some goody good kids at those parties too, you know, and they were sure. the ones that were wild. But, um, you know, I think that kind of sets the tone for people when you're stigmatized that early in life just by one reason. Yeah. So, for so one do you reason. remember the first time you smoked a cigarette or drank a beer or smoked marijuana? I remember the first time I ever smoked a cigarette. I was in high school and it was probably the same time I first t- started drinking beer. Um, I think I was in 10th grade. I hadn't smoked pot yet or anything like that. Um, but I started smoking, um, hanging out with the cool kids at the bonfires, you know, out on the desert partying, you know, you're going to 
do what they're doing to fit in mm-hmm. in a way. Oh no! I, well, and you probably had an even you know heightened sense or desire to fit in yeah. because of being excluded early on. Yeah, everybody wants to fit in at that age. It's a weird dichotomy. You want to be unique and special, mm-hmm. but you also don't want to be different yeah. from the group, right? So it's that's why you know seventh grades hard, you know that kind yes. of stuff. But if you've already experienced exclusion. Uh, that's like a hunger to be accepted and people will go to pretty great lengths to be yeah. accepted. Well, and you know, I look back and I was, <clears throat> even then I was bullied by certain kids. I was bullied. Well, and then I grew up and I got bigger than them. And so then I learned to fight. Right. And then now I'm the bad kid. Who's a fighter. Who's all these things. Be And I, and I look at it and it's, you know, what I was, I was created to be almost by the, by the situations I was going through. I was being bullied. Now I'm bigger than you. I'm going to be, be up, you know, I'm going to fight you. Um, so at a young age, you just learn to be, you just learn to be a fighter, I guess. And then, well, you get angry being excluded is hurtful and, uh, you have, you know, kids, adults aren't a lot better at this than kids, but you get that negative energy building up inside and it easily comes out and, hurtful things you say or physical things you do. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons that it's so important to, uh, as school administrators and people like that, to keep an eye on the kids that are being bullied because they typically rage builds up and they'll eventually turn around then and bully others. The, yeah. yeah, and that's exactly what happened with me. I mean, I think that school where I went to school was just so happy to get me out of there at that point. <laughs> you know? And you were probably happy to leave. I was so happy to leave. I was so happy to leave. But then, you know, you get to that point where you're leaving and I, you know, then I'm going to get married at a young age, which I don't ever recommend for me. Um, you know, let's I'm, just be honest for anybody, for anybody, yeah, yeah, Okay. <laughs> you know, and then you, you know, then I'm 18 and I, I get married. I have, I have my first daughter and I was so excited to have this little girl. Like I, you know, I would just sit there and daydream of what it was going to be like to be a mom and dress her and take care of her. And then, you know, I have her and then postpartum hits. And, you know, even then there's still that stigma around mental health. You don't talk Mm -hmm. about it. You know, Oh, you have, you have depression, you have postpartum. Well, and only just recently has postpartum really been studied and talked about as a very unique type of mental health issue. Yes. And there's not just postpartum depression, but there's also postpartum psychosis. And mm-hmm. we're understanding how it affects women more and more, but really just in the last five, six, seven years. Yeah. So when you and, were struggling with it, it, it was definitely something that was akin to, you know, like, oh, is that really a thing? Well, yeah. In the years past, it was explained as easily just saying, oh, she has hard pregnancies. Yeah. It really, you know, yeah. it really takes a toll. You know, there's that, that one lady who shows up and she's glowing and bouncing and right. she doesn't sweat. She glistens and everything yeah. is great. <laughs> yes. And then there's the other lady that's like, this sucks. Yeah. This is, I'm going to person in here and this is miserable, you know? Right. Right. And then it messes with your psyche and your oh, mental and health. And, 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 and at that moment, um, you know, I took my first Percocet and at that moment I was like, man, this feels good. I'm out of bed. This is giving me energy. I'm ready to go. Like I can be a mom. Can you describe just, I know I cut you off, but like, I I want the listeners to hear what, if you can recall, if you're willing to describe, what's an example of how it feels to have postpartum? I didn't even, for me, for me, I didn't want to get out of bed. Like I knew I had to get up. I knew I had to take care of her, but it was just so hard for me. Um, I didn't want to leave the house. I, w- I stopped like cleaning and doing laundry. You know, everything just felt so big to even do. Was it me. also 
physical? Did it feel oh, yeah. like painful. exhausted and yeah, painful? Yeah, I was always tired. I could have slept all day long. And that's the difference. Thank you for saying that. For for the listener, everybody's felt depressed. I'm using air quotes. You know, at times we've all felt bummed out and depressed. But when you really have a bout of real serious depression like postpartum depression, it is not just a mental issue. It is a physical issue as well. Yeah. And so no wonder a Percocet was welcomed. So that felt how? That felt amazing. It got me up. It gave me energy. That's how opioids, what opioids ended up doing for me is it would give me energy. So then, you know, I, I, I remember that. I can I can look back and remember taking that Percocet. It was a big yellow one. And I remember it kicking in and I was like, wow, I, I feel good. Like, I think I'm going to go to the park, you know, and then your next one. And at that moment, I always tell people I wasn't addicted to Percocets at that moment. But I think soul, soul, like my whole soul was addicted to it. Maybe not my soul, but I was because I was like, this is what I've been looking for. Like, this is how, well, I'm this how you wanted mom. to feel. Right. Well, and yeah. nobody talked about, um, you know, opioid abuse. No one said that you could get addicted to them at least at this time. Well, in fact, the opposite back then, they yeah. were saying you, they're not addictive, yeah. that they're not dangerous. Yeah. So then, you know, I'm taking more and I'm taking more to be to become this mom that, you know, I vi- envisioned when I was pregnant with my daughter. And, you know, then I started realizing I I was addicted to him and I, I would have done anything I could to get him at that point to be a mom. You know, and I would tell myself that you're going to have to find you some pills so you can get up to take care of you know, your kids now, so you can, you can be a mom. That's addiction taking that over. Addiction. That's the justification, yes. the rationalization for why you need yes. these. You're in your head saying, I'm using these mm-hmm. for you. Yeah. I'm not using these for me. Uh, I'm doing this yeah, for you. I'm doing this for my family. So, so because, you can have the mom yes. that you deserve. Yes. I mean, that's, just, that's how crazy that this disease is, yeah. is that you're like, I'm doing this for you, honey, because mm-hmm. you mean this much to me. Yeah. But do you see how this conversation is part of bursting the the stigma of mm-hmm. of drug addiction. Oh, 100%. Because outside of this conversation, a person's um, naive or ill-informed opinion is, well, people are are doing these things to party. Yes. They, you know, they're just they're just being irresponsible and they just want to have fun and so they're they're using these kinds of drugs for that. That's not what happens well, most of the time. No. What happens is you're in a bad mental health crisis and it finally makes you feel like the mom you wanted to be yeah you know and I look back even more probably about like nine months before I had my daughter um well maybe six months before I had my daughter my aunt who I loved and I adored she was you know a second mom to me um I spent every summer with her she she was suffering from alcoholism um and she ended up dying at 38 years old of cirrhosis of the liver and I remember the very first time I ever went to a doctor's appointment I talked to her and she's like, I'm on, I'm on my way to the doctors too. And I always think to this day, she probably got some real crappy news and I got to find out that I was pregnant, oh, you know, yeah. but losing her was so hard because I remember sitting at her grave and I thought, how, why couldn't you just get sober? Why mm. couldn't you just get sober and live? You know, what, what are you doing? You just chose alcohol over your family, over your two girls. And, you know, then you fast forward a year, a year fast forward and I'm, I'm a full blown you know, dependent on opioids. I'm addicted to opioids. And um, so did it escalate that quick uh, mm-hmm. to a year that you found yourself addicted to opioids? I want to say my daughter was two or three months old once I tried that first opioid. And I mean, it was every day, every day, every day. And at that, that point, uh, was it easy to get them or were you? It was super easy at that point to get them on, you know, um, my ex-husband at the time, he had prescriptions. He was getting um 
shoulder surgery or knee surgery. And so he would get them. Um, and then people were selling them. Everybody was selling them. Like you could get them on the streets, a dollar a milligram. Um, but then that got expensive, right? So then that's when substance use really hits and you, you start losing, you know, we lost houses and cars and, um, you know, just from all of our money going to buy pills. Was your ex-husband also addicted? Yes. Yeah. Can I ask you this? When, you know, that escalated so quick in that first year, you said your daughter was two to three months old. Uh, what was the general perception or conversation with your family around what's going on? Did they know anything? No, they didn't know. They didn't. They didn't know anything. I, I mean, I tried to I think they knew I had postpartum a little bit. You know, I talked to my mom. I'm, I'm an open book with my mom and my dad. Um, so they knew I had postpartum, but they just thought, well, she must have she must be feeling better. She figured it out. Yeah. She figured it out. She's doing better. Um, she's coming over more. You know, we're seeing her more. Um, if you're an open book with your mom and dad, why didn't you open up about the pills? Because, because I didn't want them to be like, "Hey, that's not how you do it." You, you know, want my to... dad was running on the on on an EMT. He was an EMT at that time, and oh, okay. so he knew he 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 was seeing it. I wasn't. Um, but once I found what worked. You know, and I, I knew you had to buy them on the street to get them. You had mm-hmm. to have them. You had to you had to do it a certain way to get them. I knew I wouldn't be able to tell my parents that. Yeah. Yep. And that's the addiction, right? We're gonna yeah. we're gonna. So it changes. That's a great example of how it changes who we are fundamentally. Yes, a fundamental me. aspect of who you were was that you trusted your parents. You're open with them and told them everything. Yeah. But then the addiction comes in and changes one of those fundamental aspects about who you are. And creates alienation. Yes. Now you don't have that support from from the parents that you normally have because now you're hiding things from them, and you become more and more isolated in your addiction. I mean, oh, that's yeah. how that's how it works. And yeah. you know, they say our secrets keep us sick. You're listening to Project Recovery. More with Savannah coming up. Welcome back to Project Recovery. Casey Scott, Dr. Matt Willier, our guest today, Savannah Ely. How are you? Good. How are you? So now when we just left you, you're talking about you lost houses, you lost trucks. Uh, it seems like the addiction's full-blown. At this oh, point, at, is it full-blown? Yeah. At this it's point. a dollar a milligram, and you have two people in the household addicted to opioids. How many milligrams estimate were you guys going through a day? You know, um, so my ex-husband had a prescription. Um, so, you know, and when we moved, so gosh, we moved to Colorado. Okay. And when we moved to Colorado, um, we would drive clear back to Salina to get a prescription, Salina, Utah Mm -hmm. from Rangeley, Colorado. How many hours is that? Oh gosh. I want to say it's four four or five, Yeah, maybe even longer than that. And I think that they was just lower tab tens at that point or Percocet tens. So, Mm -hmm. you know, to put it, to, to look back at that point and try and figure out how much was I using at that point? I don't remember. Towards the end, I remember. Towards like the end of my opioid use disorder, I, re- I would, so give us a guess. Well, I would wake up at the end of my opioid addiction and I would snort four oxycodone thirties in the morning, and then towards the end, you know, um, sixteen. I would do sixteen a day, sixteen thirties a day. And if I didn't have anything more than sixteen, I would freak out. Or more than ten, I would freak out. I would have anxiety because so I knew it's going to be eight hundred and forty bucks a day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But it seems like we jumped ahead a little bit. Yeah, uh, we did. You call him your ex-husband. Yeah. Is the addiction the reason why? Yes. Yeah. I wanted to get sober. We, we wouldn't have been able to get sober together. You know, it just, it wasn't working. I had, We both had tried to get sober before and one would relapse. The other one would relapse. Um, 
so because I think a lot of people in that situation, and even in recovery, they tell you not to do something for the first year and a half, two years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a lot of addicts will tell you, "You're going to be my accountability buddy." You know what I mean? I'm going to hold you accountable. You're going to hold me accountable, yeah. which works if we're both holding each other accountable. Oh, yeah. But if one person falls off, uh, chances are that second one is soon to it's fall. It's going to fall. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it happened. We would try to get sober and it'd keep happening and happening. We would enable each other. We would enable. If I had a bad day, he had a bad day. Um, if he had pills, I was happy. If I had pills, he was happy. If n- neither one of us had pills, we was fighting. You know, like that's just how it worked for us. So at this point, is, is it just one daughter? No, at this point I have one daughter and my son. So, and I think my son was around one when we divorced. But you guys battled back and forth and... Uh... Yeah, I mean, and we was just two lost people. I, you know, and that's the sad thing is um, the substance use came in and it destroyed a family. And it, it's so sad to look at, like for me to look back, you know, my kids lost their parents over this. They lost a house. They lost a car, um, you know, vehicles. Um, it's it's sad to look back and see what happened to my two my two kids. No, I look two. back and I have three in, and I can tell you what addiction did to my family and yeah. did to my kids. And uh, it's hard. It's it's a hard pill to swallow. It is. But the thing is, is we can't go back and we can't change that. All we can do is prepare for the future and hopefully do different. Uh, But that, but that guilt is a lot what keeps us sick. Yeah, it does. It it keeps you really sick because at that point I was like, I'm going to get sober. Right. And I remember like the deciding factor for me of, okay, I got to get away from this marriage was um, I had thought I overdosed. I thought I had done too many pills and then I overdosed and I was nodding out. And I remember getting in my phone. And I remember writing a letter to my kids on my phone in case I don't wake up, you know, mm-hmm. that they know that mom loves them. Like mom's sick, mom loves them. And I think at that point was when I finally went to my family and I said, listen, I'm struggling. I need help. Um, I need to get out of this marriage. Like here, here's an open book, you know. Um, and they helped, you know, they were sad to see everything, how it turned out. Um, but you know, I needed to do that. I needed to do that. You think I got married when I was started dating him when I was 16, got married when I was 18, 19 years old, had my daughter when I was 19. I didn't even get to find out who I was. I didn't get to find out. Um, so, you know, at the end of this, I was like, I'm going to stay sober. So I go to the doctor for help. The doctor gives me meds to help bring me off the opioids. Um, and that was hard because all it was, was like a blood pressure med. And, you know, at this time I didn't have insurance. I didn't have any sort of, um, funding or, you know, nothing that could help me get, get sober. Was there, did your parents, did anybody talk about like you should go to a treatment center? Yeah. My mom and dad was like, we need to get you with some insurance. We need to get you into treatment. But I think deep down inside of me, I wasn't ready because I didn't get sober at that point. You know, I might have stayed sober for three months, six months after my ex-husband, but then it was right back to it. <clears throat> and Dr. I, Matt would say that was pre-contemplation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not quite – you haven't made that decision yet. But, you know, the, the other thing about that is is because before I finally got sober, there was many times that I would string three months, six months, a mm-hmm. year together and think that I've had it under control or better understand myself or whatever. And the thought of never being able to do this again was such a – anxiety oh yeah i can't do this how am i gonna live how am i gonna go talk to people you know how am i gonna clean my house i want to talk a little bit about when you sat down and opened up your book to your parents um it was hard um 
It was super hard. I don't think they knew, you know, I don't think I was fully f- open because um, I didn't want them to know some things, you know, because at that time they was helping us pay. They was helping us pay bills. They was moving us from to Colorado and then back from Colorado. Like they was financially covering a lot for me and my ex-husband and my family. And, my kids. and they probably had to put two and two together they and did. realize that they were funding your drug. Yes. Habit. And they were because I would lie. I need I need diaper money, you know, and that money was going to oxycodone. You know, that was money going to to fill my habit, not any of my kids' stuff. And that was hard, you know, looking back. But when I when I told my parents, they're like, yeah, we, we've known for a while. That's what they said. We've, we've, we've known. We just don't know what to do. You know, you, you explode when we talk to you. If we bring up anything you don't like, I would explode. And I was never like that as a person, would just explode. Um, but anytime I didn't have pills and they're questioning me, why are you sick? Why don't you feel good? Um, I knew that I knew that they knew and I and I was fearful that they was getting close to asking me, you know, because I didn't I was going to lie. I didn't want to have to lie. Um, So that that was really hard. Um, But, you know, they supported me. They helped me. They they helped me move out of that house and get my own place and get back up on my feet. Like my parents were so supportive. They thought that I was going to do it. And in the back of my mind, I was hopeful that I would. But I knew that I wouldn't. You said you got about three to six months of sobriety, and then it sounds like you went back out. Oh, I went, and I hit harder than I ever hit. You know, I just started using, hanging out, partying, drinking. Because now you're single. Now I'm single. Yeah. And so it was It was scary. It was scary. I, I, it went from heroin or from opioids to dabbling in heroin, you know, because heroin's cheaper. Was that a line you thought you would never cross? Yes. Oh, yeah. And, you know, even then, even after dabbling in it a couple times, I thought I'd never do that. I'm not going to be a heroin user. Heroin so dirty is what I would think. So I think that's a, a universal mm. thought that people have. When For most addicts, it is. Yeah. It's, a, it's a line that they said they would never cross. And we've had so many guests on the show uh, talk about, you know, that the de-evolution of that thought where eventually they're, it makes sense to be using yeah. Uh, the heroin. Well, it's the only way to keep your addiction going because pills are so expensive. You can't spend hundreds of dollars a day no. No. and 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 not end up on the streets. Well, and I had a prescription. You know, I had went to a doctor and I'd said, I, I, I need, this was a different doctor and I had heard on the streets, if you go in and you tell him you, you need to get sober off of these pills, you leave with a prescription. And I thought, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? So I did. And mm. I did. I left with a prescription and I left with, I think, 90 oxycodone 30s. And then, you know, I could call, I would go in there, he'd give me 15s and then back to 30s, back to 15s. And, you know, I had a, I had a really bad problem to begin with, but at that point it grew even more and it grew even more and it grew even more. And then, you know, I start hanging around some other people that are doing heroin, meth and everything else. And, um, I'm telling them I need to get off these, these opioids. Like I can't do this anymore because trying to find and afford 1630s a day on the streets is it's just you can't do that yeah at this point who's watching your kids um so i have at this point my my ex-husband has my two older kids we we have joint custody but a lot of the times they would be with him or they'd be with my mom and dad you know or i would have them i would have them i was i wasn't the mom that didn't 
take care of her kids, you know. And I say that looking back, like I really presently wasn't there, but I was taking them to school. I was getting them ready on the first day of school. I was a functioning, and I hate to say that word, but I was a functioning mom, you know. I was working full time. Um, I wasn't just running around using, you know, and just partying. In back was, alleys. Yeah. I was, I was the, I was the house mom, you know, at this time I'm in a new relationship Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, so we moved in together. He had no clue that I was doing pills. Is that not just the crazy? Because I, and everybody would be like, oh, I have someone I want to hook you up with. And I'd be like, oh, I can't date them. They're a substance user, you know? (laughs) And I would self-stigmatize them knowing I'm a substance user. Like it's, it's so weird, but then. You know, I started dating this kid that I went to prom with in high school and, um, you know, been best friends with him. And he never knew that I did opioids. He did. He didn't have a clue. And I wasn't going to tell him. No, I wasn't going to tell him. But he found out. Oh, yeah. He ended up finding out. So we ended up having a daughter. Um, and any time I got pregnant, I would I would stop. You know, I'd cut myself back and I wouldn't use when I was pregnant. Um, and then it would be full force right after I had had my babies. So at this point, um, you know, we have our little girl and um, I'm trying to get off of all these Percocets or all these oxycodones and um, I I get introduced to meth. And, you know, you mix your meth with this pill and your pill's going to last longer. And um, that was the worst mistake of my life. And I would I I lost so much using opioids, but I lost even more within six months using meth. Wow. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, either did I. And I was 28 and I thought, I will never do meth. Meth is gross. Meth is dirty. So when you say mixing, were you snorting? Or you, I was snorting, you know? yeah. I, I never smoked meth, just snorted it. Um, but I would mix pill with meth and then I'd be up all day. And then, you know, I'm I'm off the opioids, but I'm full-blown addicted to, addicted to meth. And you say you lost more in that, those six mm-hmm. months. What, what did you lose? I lost everything. Um, I lost both my kids were with their dads. I, I, you know, I didn't lose them like full custody, but I told them, I said, you know, you need to keep the kids because I knew where I I was paranoid. Um, I was not mentally stable at all. Sometimes people even experience hallucinations, delusions. I mean, you can, we had this conversation with a friend the other night, uh, where we were talking about, uh, drug induced psychosis. Mm -hmm. So you can essentially create like a schizophrenic experience in your brain and thankfully most people that recover from that but some don't yeah yeah and so you can you can create a mental illness that wasn't there previously yeah well you know and i think the paranoid being paranoid was what really did it for me because at first i was like man this is great this is energy this is what started my substance use is having energy and i'm cleaning my house and i'm doing all these things and then, you know, I'm not picking my kids up from school and um, I'm angry even more. You know, I, I wa- went to my mom's house and I wanted money and she wasn't going to give me any money. You know, mm. she was she knew what she I don't think she knew that I was doing meth, but she she knew I was using it again. Moms know. Yeah. Moms know. And I told my mom, I want I want some money. And she said, no, I'm not giving you money. And I freaking you know, I lost it on my mom. And I said, I can't believe what a piece of crap mom you are. And she's not, she's the most, she's my best friend. And I said, I'm going to go home and I'm going to, I'm going to kill myself. And she said, you know what? And I was like, yeah, because you're such a piece of crap, you know, and I'm bagging on my mom, bagging and bagging. And she's dealing with so much more than just this. And I was the straw. My mom walked over to her purse. 
She grabbed her Xanax and swallowed all of them. And I remember fighting Whoa. my mom. Yeah. And I remember fighting my mom on her in her kitchen trying to get these Xanax out of her mouth. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I just killed my mom, you know. And um, so I walk out on the back porch and I pick up my youngest daughter and I, I left because I thought I just killed my mom. And my grandma's there. She's screaming at me. My cousin's there. She's screaming at me. And I and I left. And I, I drove home. And the whole way, you know, which is only like 15 miles, but the whole way I thought, I just killed my mom. I just killed my best friend. Oh, my goodness. And it was at that point, which she ended up being okay. They called the ambulance. She went to the hospital. But at that point, I was like, you need to get sober. And that was when the seed got planted for being wanting to be sober. And... But I didn't, you know, it wasn't fully wanting it. And, um, you know, so I came back to my house. I got pulled over. They wanted to make sure I was okay. Um, and this officer, John Barnett, I was like, man, he's going to arrest me for, you know, I've had all these crazy things going on because I'm, I, I didn't know what to think. And I thought he's going to arrest me for what just happened at my mom's house. My dad's going to just completely be so pissed at me. He's going to, you know, I just killed my mom. What is my brother going to think? And, um, and John's like, no, your mom's going to be okay. They got her in the ambulance. They got her going to the hospital. She's going to be okay. And my dad came and, um, he said, you know, Savannah, we, I don't know what happened. Let's just get your mom taken care of. And, you know, I'll come back over and I'll talk to you. And at that point I was like, I, I remember going home and I remember standing there and looking in the mirror and I thought you are a waste of space. Look at what, look at your life. Look at what you're doing to your family, to your kids. Like you, you need, you, who are you? You know, and I, and I looked at that person in the mirror and I didn't even know who she was. And, you know, a couple weeks passed and I am just, that meth is running through and you, you have all these thoughts, these racing thoughts and you're paranoid. And, you know, um, Zach, the guy that I was with, he had left me and he had taken my, my youngest daughter at this time. Now I have three kids. Um, the two older, I've pushed them off to their dad and I hate to say push them off, but I just didn't, they were older. I didn't want to see them. I didn't mm. want them to see me like this. And I remember just sitting there and I thought, how do I, what do I do? How do I get out of this? And I thought I'm going to kill myself. And I did, I, I attempted. And I remember waking up in ICU at Castleview hospital and, um, I had the most amazing therapist there. His name was Dane and he's still my therapist today. Um, but um, you know, him saying, you need to get, we need to get you some help. And even at that moment, I was like, no, you know, you, I'll go to the friendship center. They have this friendship center and I'll stay there. But, um, after that, I'm, I'm I don't, you know, I, I'm, I don't want to stay sober. And I remember my dealer coming and dropping off meth to me while I'm in this friendship center. Oh my gosh. That guy's a jerk. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> I wanted it. You know no, what I mean? I, it's I the game. It. I get it's it. It's the game. I, I get it. But that's just to show you how maddening the disease is. Um, oh, you attempted yeah. suicide. Yeah. End up in the ICU. Yes. You've got somebody there telling you you need help and wanting to give you help. Yeah. You tell them you're okay. You go to a friendship center where you get meth delivered. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then I leave the next day, right? I, I, mean, I leave. Yeah, I go I mean, back home. I go back home to the same environment where I just attempted to end my life. And I. And are you alone at home now? Because yes. your kids are gone. Yes. And, and so that's a terrible place to be. Terrible place. Alone. Yeah. But see, I didn't tell them I was going to be alone because my mind was made up. I wanted to end my life. 
you know, and I was going to do it. Oh, you were going to go another. I was going to do it. So I thought, you know, when I woke up in ICU, I remember thinking, you can't even do this right. You know, and I was so mad at myself because I thought you can't do anything right. You can't even kill yourself right. And had you overdosed on pills? Is I that- I had taken twenty eight Xanax, one milligram Xanax. Um, I had drank a half gallon of um, black velvet whiskey, and I had done about I don't know maybe two or three lines of meth. And wow, I and- don't know how. Um, yeah. I remember my mom coming through. I don't know if I text her or if I said something to her, but my mom came through the window of my house and I told her, I'm going to call the cops. And she says, you better call the cops, you know, but I don't remember anything. I don't remember anything, you know, from that point. But um, yeah, I ended up, I was in ICU for, I don't probably just a day um, trying to get everything out of my system and make sure that I'm okay. Yeah. But I remember when I woke up and I was with it, that was my first thought is you can't even do this right. And so you're back at home and now you're thinking of a second attempt. I, I thought of the second attempt before I even left the Friendship Center. The, the that center. was your intention. You were going to yeah, go Yeah, I, w- I thought I'm going to do it. I'm going to okay. figure out so a way and I'm going to do it. What happened? Um, I got home and I was probably there for maybe three or four days and then I found a gun. And... Um, it was a handgun, and I remember I remember looking at myself, and I snorted all my Xanax because they gave me more Xanax. And so I snorted probably like, I don't know, 18 Xanax and did some math. And um, I had that gun, and I remember sitting on the um, my, my tub, and I stood up, and I loaded that gun. And I remember when I loaded it, it hit my finger, like on the top, like pulled, my, pulled the skin off my finger. And um, I remember looking in the, the mirror thinking – this is it. Like, you don't know. Like, so many people are going to be so much happier. You know, your kids are going to be free. Your mom's going to be free. Like, you'll be free, you know. And I remember crying. I remember just bawling and thinking, God, I feel so bad leaving my kids, you know. Like, they didn't deserve the mom that they got at that point. And um, I, that Xanax kicked in, and it was like I'd never taken it. And I, and I feel like this was like a spiritual, almost a spiritual experience, I'd never taken, like I was addicted to Xanax. I was snorting them to come down every night uh, using meth. And those Xanax kicked in like I had never taken one in my entire life. And I put that gun down and I couldn't even see. And I just walked to my bed and I passed out. And when I woke up, my little dog that I have, my little red healer, he was laying right there and he's just licking me. He's like, mm-hmm. wake up, wake up. And when I woke up, I was like, that's it. I'm scared now. I'm fearing for myself. And that's when, you know, things changed and I started wanting recovery. And the more I wanted recovery, the more my life became uncomfortable. Those delusional moments are so scary because uh, a person, you know, I've spoken to many people in my 20 years of doing this who have attempted suicide and and lived, thankfully. But in those moments, you really believe that you're doing everybody a favor. Yes. You really believe that you're making everyone's lives better, yes. which couldn't be farther from the truth. Yeah. You're leaving a hole in people's lives that can never be filled when yeah. a person takes their life. Um, but that's what's scary about that depressive, suicidal uh, moment. Uh, and it's it's wonderful that you were able to get through that and woke up feeling scared because that's the right feeling to have is fear and fear uh, sounds like motivated you to have a a different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. 
Fear. I, I think fear motivated my whole first recovery because I was I was using meth and I was, oh my gosh, the FBI is paying millions of dollars to hack into my phone. You know, like they're watching me. And um, so that was scary to me for me, too, because I I mean, I wasn't used to anything like that. Ten years I was doing opioids. Opioids didn't do that. But meth sure makes you paranoid. Got, oh, yeah. yeah. So you bad. wake up with the red healer licking your face. Yeah. And you're f- afraid. I'm scared. So where do you go from there? I went to someone who I avoided at all cost. My brother, who is a law enforcement officer. I went to wow, his you've house. Got an EMT, yeah, a, a sheriff grandpa, an EMT dad, and a, a law enforcement brother. Yes. A lot of people who could uh, I put the brakes on this for yes. you. Yeah. Yep. And I did. I went to him and I said, Kenny, yeah, I remember knocking on his door and he opened the door and he's like, didn't even recognize me. I mean, I was 109 pounds. You could see every bone in my body, you know. Um, but I told him I need help. And he tells me, Savannah, I can't save you. You have to save yourself. And he says, go, you go to mom's house and you tell mom and dad what you're doing. And he says, and I'll come and get you in a couple of days. And so I went to my mom's house and I told my mom and dad what I was doing and um, you know, they knew they, they didn't know. I mean, they knew they had to have known. Right. And, um, I stayed there and, um, four days later, my brother came and got me and he took me to the sheriff's office. And, you know, I, at this point I had my youngest daughter with me and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm never going to leave. I am going to, you know, I didn't know I've never been to jail before or anything. And I thought I am going to be, I'm going to stay here a long time. And, he sat me down and he sat me down with um, two detectives and they said, listen, we know you're lost. And, um, you know, well, first they didn't, they said, what, what's going on? And I, and I just started crying and I told them everything. And the one detective says, listen, I know you're lost, but lost things can be found. He says, you know, he, sh- he, sh- he shared some of his personal life, you know, with his struggles um, with me. And he says, I'm going to tell you something. He says, you can overcome it. He says, and we'll set you up. You know, if you really want it, we'll give you an opportunity to get it. But if you don't really want it, um, we're, we're going to be the ones walking you back to your cell. And at that moment, I was like, I, I got to stay sober. And I left there and I thought, I got to stay sober. I got to stay sober. I got to stay sober. And so I started making therapy appointments, you know, and um, we didn't have any resources in Car- Carbon or Emory County. There was no recovery meeting I could go to. I didn't even have insurance. You know, luckily my Four Corners Behavioral Health, they had like a sliding scale fee and opioid grants that they could work with me and give me free therapy. Um, so I, that's what I did. And I took advantage of it. And then I took advantage of every resource I could possibly grab onto, whether that was Reach Up, which was a suicide prevention group in Castledale and um, my family, especially my family. I mean, I reached onto them and, you know, they, they seen me, they seen, they seen me go through a lot of stuff. Um, but I just started working at it. And I always tell people, you know, there was just this one time I was standing outside and I was watching my daughter play and she was riding like this little remote control type bike. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching her and I'm probably two weeks sober at this time. And I had these overwhelming feelings, feelings come over gratitude, like and happiness and like love and joy, like feelings I have never felt in my life. Like I didn't feel that when I was using and I was like, at this moment, like I knew, like, I'm going to stay sober and I'm going to work hard at this. And um, I always tell everybody, like, my motivation was my kids, but I knew at the end of the day, I deserved it. You know, it took me a long time to get there, 
but I deserved it. But my kids motivated me because I could have never got sober for them. I couldn't before. So nothing was going to change. That fundamental perspective is the key, right? Yes. Like we we can be inspired by um, important people and things in our lives, but in the end it has to be a fundamental focus on I'm worth saving. Yeah. 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 So with uh, help of a therapist, mm-hmm. a can-do attitude, yeah. friends, family, and every resource available, yeah, you've now put together a little over five years of sobriety. Yeah, and I think a lot of it was fear, too, because even Fear's getting, a great motivator. Well, fear was, I, yeah, I mean, but I don't. I always tell everybody, hey, you know, when I still got sober, I was, even though I wasn't doing meth, I was still paranoid for a while. It took a, it took me a, a good year and a half to not feel so scared anymore, like I was being watched. Well, that's brain damage yes. at, at its basic definition. Yes. You know, we're damaging our brains when we use drugs, especially a drug like meth. Yeah. And uh, fortunately, that cleared for you. Yeah. Unfortunately, it doesn't clear for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. You at one point were the opioid advocate. Yeah, I was the opioid prevention specialist for the, the Southeast Utah Health Department. Now, how does that come about? So I started, so I, I got involved with USARA. Um, Which is a great organization. Oh, wonderful. USARA is amazing. And they've got places all over the state. Yes. Uh, if you need some help or you have a loved one who needs some help, all you have to do is pick up the phone. Yeah. And they will con- they will get you in touch of a, a coach. Uh, yes. They will help you out and point you in the right direction of treatment facilities around you. Yes. And if that's not an option, here's this. And if this is not an option, here's this. That's what, yeah. And so I, I went and did that. I became a peer, a certified peer support specialist and started working for USARA in Emory County. But before that, I would volunteer. My, you know, I'd show up to the coalition meetings, the Carbon Emory Opioid Coalition meeting and the Hope Squad walks and, you know, just showing up, even volunteering that, um, I finally decided, well, I should, you know, a year sober. I was like, I'm going to go do the CPSS training. And so I went and did that training and I started working for USARA as a peer recovery coach. And um, then this other job came up as the opioid prevention specialist. And I was like, I'm going to, I need insurance. You know, I got, uh, who knows what I've done to myself. I need to have some insurance. So I applied for this position and um, got that position. Um, was hired by the Southeast Utah Health Department. And then from that, another blessing came. Yeah, from that, I went to, I, you know, we did, we built all kinds of amazing programs um, working for the Southeast Utah Health Department. Um, you know, we did harm reduction, syringe exchange. We was able to build a program for that in Carbon County, which is huge um, because Hep C is like a huge epidemic down there that no one talks about. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then from there, I um, applied for a position for um, the detox at Castleview for alcohol and opioids and went there. And now we're, we're going to do all kinds of amazing things there, too. And, but I still get to work with every organization that, you know, helped me grow as a person and um, that I was I was so a part of. Like, I'm still a part of that. I just am, you know, from a different different perspective. Tell me a little bit about the pregnancy stabilization program that you guys do. So we're, we do a pregnancy stabilization where if there is a, any women who are using opioids while pregnant, um, they can come in and stabilize on mat. If they haven't received prenatal care, we can get them prenatal care while they're there um, and hook them up with an OBGYN to continue that mat, whether if it's Suboxone or set them up with um, Operation Recovery in Carbon County or wherever they're at, Project Reality, um, and continue methadone and just get them stabled on, on mat treatment. So for those who are listening in the rural parts of the state of Utah or any community, 
and they're looking for help and it, yeah. it it's not easy to find what are some of the things that they could do um, so we have, gosh, you know, now we have a tons of resources down in Carbon and Emory Counties. We have Carbon Medical. They do sliding scale fee. They do mat treatment and they do, um, you know, they do behavioral health, um, four corners, life balance recovery, USARA, um, tons of people just working. Um, they could call any one of those organizations or even me at the hospital and I will, I will help them get treatment. I will help them find what's going to meet their needs, even if it isn't detox. Like I will bridge you over to someone that is going to help you. You mentioned, you mentioned bridge and you guys are doing something now with the bridge program. Tell me about that. Yeah. So we just, um, got a grant, um, and we're partnering with the university of Utah here. They do the bridge program. Um, in their ED, um, we're going to start doing that in our ED where if somebody is suffering and they're like, I need to get sober, you know, I, I need help. They can come into our ED. We'll initiate buprenorphine um, for them. And then there'll be a peer navigator in there that'll um, help bridge them over to a provider. But when they leave, they'll have like five days of Suboxone with them um, to bridge them over. And then that peer navigator will also hook them up with treatment resources. Do you need housing, heat, you know, just everything somebody might need because, you know, for, for a lot of people recovery, like the needs that you need in recovery and early recovery look a lot different than, you know, six months down the road, resources change. Here's the thing. When you're active in addiction, your only need is the substance that you're addicted to. Yes. But once you get into recovery, your needs are clothing, Mm-hmm. Food, house, heat, gas, all those things. Yes. And so when you when you put it down on a basic table and you're like, well, I just need this. And if I have this, then everything's okay. But if I want to get it sober, I'm going to need this, 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 this. Yeah. And it just seems insurmountable. It, and just it's, seems- it is because when you look at that, you think, how am I going to get all of that? Well, let's just work on one thing, right? And that's what that's what's great about meeting people where they're at. Um, you know, I meet people where they're at all the time and some of them don't want to get sober, but that's okay. They still deserve a meal. You know, they still deserve mouthwash and hygiene care. Deodorant. Yes. And not everybody's right at that place where they're fully committed and have that view that I'm worth saving. And so Mm -hmm. I'm committed to treatment, but that doesn't mean they won't get there. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't help them. And so harm reduction programs, and even just good old-fashioned kindness mm-hmm. uh, are so valuable in helping people transition in their behavior change from thinking about it to doing something about yes. it. And, you know, we would like them all to be ready to change right when somebody's there offering a service, but not everybody is. And so these kinds of programs are extremely helpful in helping people prepare themselves to change. But then when a person's ready to change, giving them the support to see them through and it reduces, you know, uh, the recidivism of bouncing back to the hospital over and over again or having relapses over and over yeah. again. Because like you said, Casey, mental health and substance abuse, one of the biggest problems we've always faced is we create these awesome inpatient or day treatment type programs that are fantastic, but then a person leaves and then there's nothing. Mm-hmm. And so a bridge program is a key to helping so many people continue their motivation to, to change. I mean, I think that's fantastic. As you're thinking about, you know, I'm from a small community as well. Um, I think we both established that we grew yeah. up in towns without uh, traffic lights. Yes. And, and they still don't have them, or at least Morgan doesn't, uh, which is fantastic. I love that. It's not a put down. It's a put up. Put up. I, I like it. it. Small town. Go. Yeah. But what would you say 
is sort of a unique challenge for people in a small community, rural communities, to get help when when they're ready, when they feel like, I really want to change, when they have those moments like you had where they're like looking around and they're like, I want to be different, I want to be healthy. What's unique in a rural community, do you think? Um, I think like Carbon and Emory, um, you know, it's so small, everybody knows everybody. Um, so I think that people are scared to reach out for help there. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I think that keeps people sick because they don't want everybody knowing or seeing them. Everybody's already in your business. You don't want them in that part of your business. Yeah. But the reality is, is everybody knows anyways. Oh, Nobody just wants yeah. to have the open conversation. Yeah. If it's a small town and really everybody knows what everybody, everybody's already talking yeah, about it. True. Nobody just wants to look each other in the eye and say, hey, I yeah. know. Yeah. Well, I think stigma, too. Mm-hmm. I think stigma is a huge one. In those small, yep, yep. you know, and I know one of our biggest Reputation. gaps. Yes, yes. And one of our biggest gaps in Carbon County and Emory County is transportation, you know, because we're rural and we're, you know, a lot of these towns are far apart and yeah, they don't You can't walk license. there, can no, you? No, no. What about, you've also mentioned uh, insurance several oh, times. Oh, insurance. So how, how big a problem is a lack of insurance, do you think? Um, You know, I think since Medicaid switched over, it's been a lot better. People can get on Medicaid. Yeah. Um, when they opened, when they did that expansion, um, but so but Medicaid so, will only go so far. Medi- yeah, it, that's what I was going to say. When it comes to addiction and mental health, yeah. and I mean, luckily though, she also used another term, sliding scale. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so um, we've had feedback on this show over the years that we've done this show, where people are sort of. I, I've had a few where they're kind of angry, and they're like, "Well, you guys talk about these treatment centers that are so posh, and I can't afford that. I don't have any insurance." And that's a great point. Yeah. But there are more and more options. And one of the things I love about your story is you were tenacious. You, when you decided, you said, you're like, I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. I'm going to do whatever. And so I would highly encourage anybody right now who feels like their lack of resources, financial or insurance wise, are holding them back. Pay attention to places like USARA yes. and other places that you've mentioned today that can help you find resources, even if you don't feel like you have the money to pay for it. Don't give up because of that. Because now, even in our smaller, more rural communities, there are more and more options for people to to get help when they they can't afford it. I got two questions before we end this podcast. Uh, One, is telehealth available when it comes to addiction in some of these rural towns? Yeah, it is. And do you find that that helps? I mean, it's got to be better than nothing. but because people need connection, right? Yeah. They need connection. So that's why USARA is such a good resource. Um, Four Corners is, you know, a huge resource. They, I mean, they're always bringing the new and best. Like we have a methadone clinic in Garvin County. You know, we're getting a receiving center. Like Four Corners has been paving the way and bringing different things, you know, and then you have life balance. But people need connection. People need, and that's why I love you, SARS, because it is all about connection. Everybody there has lived experience. They all know what you're going through. They've all been through it and they're there to help, you know, and that's where USARA is different than most places for me. How's the relationship with your kids now? Oh, it's so amazing. I love it. To is hear so, it is so, that is all I care about right now. Like, um, and that's all I have cared about. You know, my little girl just got diagnosed. My youngest just got diagnosed with type one diabetes. Mm. And I thought, thank God that I am sober because I don't know how I would even manage this if I was, if I was not, you know, so I'm, I'm so grateful. I, 
I'm so grateful. And my oldest is going to high school, which is scary, right? Mm-hmm. But um, we have the best relationship. My little guy, he's going into fifth grade. Like, I love them. And now I get to show them, like, hey, you know, I messed up, but let me show you who mom really is. Do you guys you have know? conversation about addiction? Yeah, all the time. And they know, hey, it runs in my family. Um, alcoholism runs in my family. My mom, you know, addiction runs in my family. And they got to see, like, what it does to families. They got to see firsthand, you know. So I hope that that helps them on making a decision. But I'm open. We're so open. I mean, there's some things I don't tell them because, you know, I don't want to cause them trauma. Yeah, they don't need every (laughs) detail. But I let them know, yeah, mom was gone because she was suffering. You know, she was suffering from substance use. She was well, she had an addiction. That's one of the best things uh, from a therapist's point of view that you can do in your family is talk about it. Yeah. Open conversation. Nothing, is, you know, is taboo when it comes to we need to be talking, you know, about addiction and family history and, you know, potential for, for problems to go awry. That's a really important conversation to have all the time. It's an open yes. conversation. I know Casey's done a great job with his family where they, they just talk about it. And yeah. families who talk about it, you can end that intergenerational cycle of of addiction just through how we talk about it. Yeah. And that's huge for me. Well, what's huge is that you stopped by and shared your story yeah. with our podcast Thank today. You. If people want more information about Castleview Hospital and USARA and all those other things, how's the best way to get a hold of you? Um, you can call the hospital at 435-636-4808, um, or you can go to Cure the Conversation. There's a, a website um, that the health department has done recently, and it has all of our local resources in one spot. What was that again? Cure the Conversation. Oh, wonderful. Is that a dot org? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Curetheconversation.org. I haven't. Yeah. Yeah. I, good. That's And that's important that... That rural communities know where their uh, their resources lie yeah. and how to get in touch. Yeah. Well, thank you very place. much for driving all the way down <laughs> here and being on the podcast. Your smile's infectious. I love thank it. You. I love your story, and I love what you're doing with your recovery. Thank you, Casey. Thank you guys for having me. Dr. Matt, I love you. Love you too, buddy. Nice blouse. You're listening to Project <laughs> Recovery, a KSL podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to... Give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. 
And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.